right. Well, hey, church, thank you so much for worship. You have to forgive me this morning. I have been uh, just cradling a cup of coffee to help me to stay awake, as many of you know, and maybe saw this morning we have our newborn baby, Juby, and uh, she is just reminding us how much we need the Lord more than we need sleep. And so uh, that has been good. Let me pull our slides up here and... uh, I'm really excited. We're gonna, we're, we've been in the book of Mark, and uh, that has been an incredible journey, and we came to the climax of the book of Mark, where uh, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? So we're going to take a break from the book of Mark. We're going to return and finish the rest of it, um, and uh, it's going to be a great journey. But we want to take this summer to ask the question, who are we as First Baptist Church? God has uniquely placed us as a church, as a people here in Riverton in Fremont County. And so we are clearly called by God to live for him and to be the light in the darkness for the surrounding community. Amen. And so for us to do that, we have to figure out who are we as a church? I don't know if you guys have noticed, but with a new pastor, we got new people coming. We've, we've got all kinds of new things. We got to ask the Lord, God, who are you fashioning us to become? And so with that, I want to propose that we go over what are the functions of the church from the position of Scripture. What is the church supposed to do? What are we supposed to be about? And then from there, we can ask the, the more refined question, God, then if we are a part of the church, who are we specifically as the church in Riverton, okay? Not who's the church over there in New York or who's the church on YouTube. It's who has God created Riverton First Baptist to be. And so um, we're going to dive in. I'm calling it Scope, but I just want to, I'm going to pray real quick that God would guide our conversation in this, that he would inspire us, that he would wake us up to live urgently as a church for the sake of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray, God, that that we would live uh, faithfully as a church to what you've commanded to us so that we can see and praise and thank you, God, for the amazing miracles that you work through us as we follow you, God, as we run to you. And so, God, I pray that that, uh, as we begin to ask the question, who are we and what are we supposed to do as Riverton First Baptist, I pray that you would resoundingly show us and that we would be able to praise you for the things that you begin to accomplish through us. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. All right. Well, uh, so a couple of you saw me walk up to the stage with uh, this awesome device right here. I was kind of, I looked around. I was like, man, I don't, I wish I had a real sword for you. I talked to a couple of guys like a Claymore or something. and, And so this was the best I could do on such short notice. This is my son's ninja sword. Okay. If you can hear it, I'm gonna put it up. Can you hear that? It's got sounds, okay? It's awesome. Um, and every young boy has to have a sword, amen? Right, okay, well, um, the thing about swords is they have a limited functionality. And so I want you to maybe imagine, use your imagination with me that this is a real sword, okay? And with this sword, is it gonna re- work really, really well to uh, serve butter on toast? Do you think that's going to be a good use of a katana? It might be overkill, you know what I'm saying, for using with butter. It's like a large butter, it's a little bit more significant than a butter knife, right? 
It might be overkill. You can certainly use it to serve butter on your toast, but I don't recommend using a full sword to serve butter on your toast. You can take a sword, right? And you can begin to dig holes with a sword. Can you do that? Yeah, you can do that, but with limited effectiveness, right? And it kind of blunts the sword. It's not going to work very well after that. Where are my fishers at? Okay, you can, can you use a sword to fish? I mean, I suppose you can, right? Maybe you can tie a line to the end of it, right? Or maybe you could like stand at the top of the lake and do what's like spearfish, like with your, you know, I'm not that coordinated. I wouldn't be able to do that. But you can use a sword for a lot of different things other than its intended purpose, right? What is the word of God called? The sword, right? And there's a lot of people that have a lot of different uses for the word of God, don't they? But does that change its intended purpose for us? And you can certainly take things out of context and you can try to force them to happen, but that's probably not the best use of the sword of the word of God that God has given us, yes? And so we are going to unpack the very first, uh, if you will, I'm a big acronym guy, first letter of what we're calling SCOPE. Um, so that's Scripture, Community, Outreach, Praise, in evangelism. And this is going to be our journey for the next few weeks. We're going to look at what does God prescribe to the church? What are our functions? We know that our mission and our goal is what? I love it. I heard one guy. Let's shout this out. According to Matthew, right? Last chapter in Matthew says that we are to what? Go and make disciples. That is the purpose of the church, to go and make disciples of all nations, all nations, right? To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I commanded, right? So we know that that is the purpose of the church in this earth. We encounter God and we go make disciples. But then how do we do that? You ever asked? How do we make disciples? Well, the epistles and a lot of the New Testament lay out what is the church supposed to look like? And we're supposed to be centered on Scripture. We're supposed to be a community of people united in Christ. Amen? We're supposed to have some impact on the world around us. If we're going to be a light in the darkness, that means that non-Christians in our community need to have been impacted by us in some way. Would you agree with that? And then praise, as we talked about, praise is, our, is a, a way of elevating the name of Jesus. Our praise, when we sing together, when we elevate the name of Jesus, we're praising. And the last thing is called evangelism. And we've spent some time on evangelism. You guys remember your evangelism styles way back when I first got here? Where we talked about how everybody has God-given styles of evangelism. And the trick is, not why is evangelism hard, but what is my style? What has God gifted me with as a style for evangelism? So that's the roadmap. We're going to probably spend two or three Sundays on Scripture itself because that is a centerpiece of what we do as the church. I hope you know when I get up and I teach, I'm not trying to make you all look more like shame. That would be disastrous in every sense of the word, okay? When we teach at any church, the teaching has to come from Scripture, it has to come from Scripture because that's our measure, our canon of truth. And so we're going to unpack how do we use our swords? How do we use our swords? And, and the other aspect of this that is important for us is that, look, 
I can know this thing really well and I can go to school really well. But if we have a people, not just a person, a people that know how to use their sword, that know how to encounter God through the word that he gave us, is that going to impact this community? Oh, big time, big time. So for some of you, maybe this is gonna be review. Maybe some of you, this is gonna be enlightening, but we're gonna jump into the word of God, scripture, and we're gonna unpack about how our church is to be centered on God's word. Can we do that? This is yes. You guys still, man, you need more coffee than I do. I'm the one who's got the newborn, guys. Come on. Okay. Here we go. So in your sword, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. Turn to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to begin to unpack Scripture, the Bible as we know it. 1 Timothy 4.13. 1 Timothy 4.13. And this is Paul, and he's exhorting a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy's a new young pastor in the church of Ephesus. And what is Paul's encouragement to Timothy? You'll see here it says, until I come, this is Paul to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. What is the centerpiece of what Paul wants this new young pastor to focus on? The Scriptures, the Scriptures. And I want you to see there that there's this word devote. If, you got, uh, if you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, I want you to go ahead and underline that word devote. What does devotion mean? Is devotion a casual word? You kind of treat it casually. No, you wouldn't be devoted if you are not committed to it, right? So that means that there's this sense of intentionality. You guys know what it means to be intentional? It's when you do things on purpose. When you do things on purpose, intentional. So we, as a people, in the early church, they were modeling this idea that they were devoted, they were intentional about how they pursued God's word, how they jumped into God's word. They made an emphasis. They sacrificed time. They wanted to make sure that they devoted themselves to the reading of Scripture out loud. By the way, have you ever done this? One of the coolest experiences for me, I, as a college pastor, I got to go to this big conference called Passion Conference. You guys ever heard of Passion Conference? It happens once a year in January. You get, uh, at this year, it was the year that I was there, it was white flag. So there were 60,000 college students in the Atlanta, Georgia Dome. Okay, and you have some of the most renowned Bible teachers in the whole world. You got guys like John Piper, you got Beth Moore, you got Francis Chan, these renowned Bible teachers, right? And you think each one of those sessions, they're going to get up and they're going to, I mean, it's what they do. They're incredible teachers. But there was one session that all of them submitted themselves to just standing up, even though they're the most renowned Bible teachers. And you know what they did? They took turns reading the book of Ephesians. And I'll tell you, even now when I think about it, it just shivers down my spine to think about how much more powerful it was to just read the word of God. It wasn't about celebrity preachers anymore. It wasn't about the big worship band. Now it was solely the word of God that had the authority that reigned that session. You think about, is there power in the word of God when we believers read out loud with one another? Okay, if you're a student in here uh, and you go to school, I always encouraged my students, man, get with a couple people at lunch and read the word of God out loud with one another. 
It says read out loud, right? Small groups. Sometimes in small groups, we get we kind of get bogged down in uh, in discussion and picking things apart and that kind of thing. And those things are good and there's a good place for that. But have you ever had a small group where you just kind of reverently sat and soaked in the word of God where you read it out loud together prayerfully? Have you ever done that? Small groups, I I encourage you maybe this summer if you get an opportunity, um, that's gonna be my challenge to small groups is sit down and devote yourself to the word of God. Read it out loud with one another. Sometimes we don't need somebody to unpack it for us. Remember, if we, we talked about last week, the idea of the new covenant is that we all have direct access to who? To God through Jesus Christ. You don't need somebody to mediate. Did you guys know that it's not my job as your pastor to mediate your relationship with, with God? Jesus does that for you. You have a direct line to God. You don't need me or somebody else to tell you how to connect with God. And so you can man, get this, Moses prayed this, that you would connect to God with the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ and be connected to God in that way. And you can do that while you read scripture with one another. It doesn't have to be on Sunday. Isn't that cool? How many of you are like, hey, I can connect with God anytime when you wake up in the morning. You're like, awesome, it's a Monday. I can connect with God directly today. How many of you go, yes, that's a big deal. That's a huge privilege. I mean, you've been taking it for granted, right? But scripture, scripture can connect us um, and really truly open up our connection to God if we devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Acts 2.42, so get those swords out, turn to Acts 2.42, Acts 2.42. Oh, I love hearing those, the flipping. I love it. I see a couple of warm glows too. That's awesome. Acts 2.42, Acts 2.42, and it says, and they devoted, you see that word again, devoted, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Anybody ever read the book of Acts? What happens when they do this? It blows up, right? They devote themselves to the, to the scriptures and to the, the apostles, which is where we got the scriptures, right? This is the apostles teaching to us today. They devote themselves and thousands come to Christ. Thousands meet Jesus because they devote themselves to the apostles teaching in the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, keep turning in your Bibles. Ready? Romans 1, Romans 1, 16. Romans 1, 16. You guys getting those Bibles? Yeah, that's good. Romans 1, 16. And this is Paul speaking. Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for, you guys see what it says there? Salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it says, therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Where do we find the gospel? Well, we have the four gospels that have everything to do with the life, burial, resurrection, the story of Jesus and how he conquered sin on our behalf. That's the good news, amen? And then now by belief, we can have direct access to God. So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we know that the gospel 
comes from here. I think we've got a problem with our swords. I think they're blunted. Why? Because we find ourselves in a culture that challenges the word of God. And what do we do? We cower. We get quiet. Why? Well, if we are adept at using our sword, if we're confident in where and what the word of God says, we can respond so much more in confidence. I'll tell you guys, um, my Mormon friends visited me again this last week, and uh, I'm hopeful they'll keep visiting me, but I'm pretty sure this was the end. Um, I don't know if they're going to come back. But as I began to talk to them, I began to unpack the authority of the Word of God for them. And I began to compare. They had the Book of Mormon, and I began to say, you know, these seem like human writings to me, but the power that is in the Word of God, that is in the teachings of God inspired through the Holy Spirit, are unique. And as we began to compare those two, we began to see that, man, when you know the Word of God, no matter how finite the twists and the lies about who Jesus is are, or no matter how many intricate little additions that other religions and other people try to put onto Jesus, you can see really through that very quick. You can cut through that very quick when you what? Know your Bible, when you know your Bible, okay? So um, why is it then important that we understand the scriptures, that we devote ourselves to the scriptures, and that it's not just your pastor that devotes himself to the study of scripture. Well, we have two things, as I unpack this, is uh, we have something called general revelation and specific revelation. General revelation is we can look out at those mountains, amen, and we can say God clearly exists. Would you agree with that? We can look at creation and say, wow, he exists. That's general revelation. Okay, good. The Bible says even the demons recognize that God exists, right? That's general revelation. God exists, his creation attests to him. But we also have this thing called specific revelation, specific revelation. How do we know specifically who God is? Not just that he exists, but how do we know who he is? What's our best avenue to specific revelation? God revealing who he is specifically, okay? The word of God. Number one is the incarnation of Jesus. We know that Jesus himself is the perfect image of God. We're going to get into that in a second. He's the perfect image of God. And so how do we know who Jesus is while he was on this earth? There you go, right? So again, our best access to knowing who God is is scripture. I'm going to keep asking these rhetorical questions. They're pretty easy Sunday school answers, yes? Okay, good. If I surprise you or if I shock you, um, it's just not going to happen, okay? We, the fundamentals is we encounter who Jesus is through God's word, through what was recorded by the apostles, and if anything contradicts that, then we reject whatever contradicts the teachings of the apostles about Jesus. Because we, through this 66 books that God gave us throughout all history— we know that God used man to give us his own words about who he is. God is real, personal, and relational, and it's by his gracious self-revelation that anyone comes to know him. This is what we call specific or special revelation, that we get to know who God is, not because of what other people say, but because of what he says about himself. 
That's what he gives. I, I tell students, literally, you can view this as the mouthpiece of God. Anybody sit there and kind of talk to God a little bit, right? You can sit and you can pray quietly, but you're, it's going to be a one-way conversation until you do this number and start listening, right? Anybody had a one-way conversation on a date? How well do you get to know? Usually one person gets known, right? When it's a one-way conversation on a date. I think about this, general revelation comparing. um, When I first met Becky, I could tell that she was beautiful. I could see that because I wasn't blind, right? And I could see that she was passionate about Christ, but that's all I knew about her until I, I went and had a date with her and I began to do what? I began to listen began to listen, and I began to ask her questions, and I began to talk to her, right? That's how we get to know who God is, and we only do that if we talk to and listen who God is, and that means we have to be deeply devoted to God's Word intentionally. Um, Okay, Bibles, ready? Colossians 1. So in your Bibles, turn to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, take your finger, follow along with me. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20, and we're going to be talking about why is it that Jesus is the best perspective about who God is. This is how we get to know him, and through him, this is how we get to know who God is. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, he, Jesus that is, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Who is that? Jesus. And so it's saying there's general revelation, but in order, excuse me, to know God directly, you need to be looking at Jesus. And continuing on, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Everybody say preeminent with me. Preeminent. What does that mean? He is of first priority. He is of first priority. He's of first priority in everything. Jesus is of first priority. For in him, all the fullness, and here's where you can underline, for in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the fullness of God displayed for us. You ever had somebody say, well, I'm pretty sure that there's some kind of higher power, but I don't know what he's like. I don't know if I like him. As you know, by the way, younger generations, they're not asking the question, does God exist? In a relativist culture, they just don't care. He probably does. But what they're asking is, do I like him and does he like me? Isn't that interesting? That's what young people are asking. But for us, Man, as the church, this is where we get dead set squared on Christ Jesus. We become obsessed. And our best way to know who Jesus is are the 66 books, not just the New Testament. And we're going to get to this. So the incarnation, Jesus is the best way to know who God is. And the Holy Spirit 
inspired then the writing of the Holy Bible in order to place Jesus on display. As you know, that fundamentally, as you do a study on the Holy Spirit, what is the Holy Spirit's chief pursuit? It is to elevate Jesus. You're going to see it time and time again in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, wherever the Holy Spirit is, he is making much of Jesus. So how do you know that something is the Holy Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit always makes a big deal about Jesus, okay? The Holy Spirit always makes a big deal about Jesus. Um, so... Uh, let's continue on. So scripture, we're going to unpack some Bible basics. Are you guys ready? We're going to go to New Test, or sorry, we're going to go to Bible Basics 101. Are you guys ready? We're going to blaze through some of this. Some of this is going to be review for you. That's great. But there are a lot of people here that need to know what is the structure of the Bible. How do we read this thing? What is it? What is in it? How do we know where to start? So if scripture, this Bible is the best way to know Jesus, which is the best way to get to know who God is. We need to know how to use the 66 books of the Bible, okay? So here are some Bible basics. Was the Bible written in English? No. It was written in three languages. It was written, um, sorry, incarnation, scripture. Uh, scripture is the word about the word. Here we go, Bible basics. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Anybody fluent in any one of those languages? Anybody? Anybody? So those, those are the languages that it was originally written in. A little bit of Aramaic is in there. So for us, it has to be translated into English, which is what we have today, which is pretty incredible. Let's talk about this then. So there were human authors that the Holy Spirit empowered to communicate who he was. We know that if you read the entirety of Scripture, the different human authors were kings. Can you guys think of a few kings? Some of them were peasants. Some of them philosophers. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were poets, statesmen, a doctor, and scholars. Ultimately, the Spirit is the author and editor of the Scriptures. Okay, he coordinates, he makes this one single unified scripture of 66 books by coordinating all of the many different authors. Isn't that miraculous? Isn't that amazing that you see the Holy Spirit communicating himself consistently? It was, has a wide range of human authors directed by the Spirit, motivated and superintended by the Spirit, and it was written over, the, over a period of 1,500 years. Isn't that amazing? How on earth is it so consistent? How is it so amazingly as if it was written by one author? Well, that's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's inspiration. We know that it's God-breathed. And so the Bible itself is given to us um, by God through the different historical events and through different men throughout history. The books of the Bible cover history. Here's what's really, uh, this is very interesting and important for us. The books of the Bible cover history, there's sermons in the Bible, there's letters, there's songs, there's love letters. Here's where most of you go to sleep. There's ge geographical surveys, there's architectural specifications. Anybody know those? Have you read those? There's travel diaries, there's population statistics, there's family trees, there's inventories and numerous legal documents. Like, it's the gamut. 
It's not just a storybook, but it's historical. It's, it's um, oh man, so many different versions of writing that God communicates to us who he is. And it's really important that we understand that it's motivated and superintended by the Spirit. We have 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom. So this is Paul to the Corinthians, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I can't make this up. This can't come from me. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We have 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so we have so many different passages. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 calls the Scriptures, or what we have, as God-breathed. God breathed is a term that it's used to describe how the Holy Spirit inspired human events, human people, to explain who he is to us. And man, that makes so much sense to me because if God was, if it was easy enough to sit down with God and he could just explain to you in one sitting who he was, that's a pretty small God. It's like, here's what I like and don't like. Oh, thanks. I got it. Okay, I know who you are, God. You'd be like, that's a God that I could probably manipulate or control, right? But God is so far above and beyond us that he's orchestrated, get this, all of human history, all of human history, and then gave us a record, and then he gives us his word in order to communicate. So not only does he orchestrate those events, but he or orchestrates the recording of those events so that we today might know what? Who he is. History is a miracle, uh, here's the interesting thing about the writers, the authors. They wrote according to their own personalities and circumstances in such a way that their words are the very word of God. We have that recorded in, in passages like Mark 12, 36 or 1 Corinthians 14, 37. I want you guys to know that I'm not making this up, that, that literally every author, God orchestrated their life so that they could communicate their personality would communicate the word of God, that their experiences would communicate the word of God, their education would communicate the word of God. Isn't that amazing? That he orchestrated all of those events so that we would have the perfect word of God and know who he is. So we have more than 40 authors. It was written three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. We know there's 66 separate books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. So this is a library of books. It's not just one book, but it's a library of books together that God has orchestrated. Between the Old and the New Testament, there was a period of what they call silence, about 450 years. So if you take the Old Testament and the New Testament in your Bibles and you put those separate, you need to remember that there were 450 years where God did not speak between those two books. There was a period of silence. You know why? Because Jesus was coming. And all of the anticipations of the Old Testament was prepping us for the coming of Jesus. And then we have, uh, man, we're gonna blaze through some stuff here now, okay? 450 years of silence between old and new. The New Testament starts with the four gospels. These are eyewitness accounts of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And we know that those are eyewitness accounts to the world about the ministry of Jesus and what he accomplished on our behalf. The rest is various instructions to churches and believers on how to live in light of Jesus. So after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get these letters then to the emerging church. It starts with the book of Romans. Do you guys, have you heard the book of Romans? Right? So all of those were churches. And so the apostles then began to write these letters to show how to live, how to become the church in light of what Jesus accomplished for us. Can I get an amen to that? The rest is various instructions. So then let's keep going. Incredible continuity between the Old and the New Testament. Have you ever uh, thought about the incredible continuity? What do I mean by that? Um, it's illustrated by 300 New Testament quotations of the Old and upward of 4,000 allusions to the Old. So the New Testament quotes directly the Old Testament and alludes to the Old Testament over 4,000 times. Is it one consistent, one consistent author over the course of 1,500 years? Yeah, that's amazing. There's no way 40 different guys could coordinate such a continuous narrative. It's incredible. It's incredible. And by the way, uh, that's the Old Testament is, is best given its authority when you think about the fact that Jesus quoted it over and over and over. The Old Testament is a series of promises. When we talk about, man, why do we go back and why do we have all of these, this history before Jesus came? Well, it's a series of promises the Old Testament is. And, all, and the New Testament is a record of the fulfillment of those promises. When Jesus comes, he fulfills all of those promises, all of the law. Jesus fulfills all those things. And, and it's an anticipation of the fulfillment of the remaining promises at Jesus' second coming. So we know and we get to anticipate that Jesus is still coming. Okay, you guys doing good? I'm, I got to confess to you, I'm more of a preacher than I am a teacher. I think you guys have maybe noticed that. But I'm trying to teach you here some very important aspects of the Word of God so that we can know our sword. Okay, uh, so here's another really important aspect of the Word of God. is uh, It was originally written on scrolls, and the numbers and the chapters that you see, those were added way, way later. Okay, look in your Bible. Look, do you see chapters and numbers? You see those? Those were added in 1205. Chapters were added. The chapters that we have today were added in 1240 BC for a total of 1,189 chapters. And then verses weren't added, so you get the numbers for verses in, in, until 1557 for a total in the whole Bible of 31,173. Why is this important that we understand that the chapters and the verses were added way later? Because chapters and verses, brothers and sisters, are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're the addition of men to help us navigate what the Holy Spirit gave us, okay? And so it's important for us to take with a grain of salt the breaks in chapters. Can I say that? When you read the Bible, it's kind of chunked out for you in specific ways. There's a, it's a very big convenience for us when we read Scripture that way, but that's not how it was given to us originally. And so as we look at the title headings for the chapters, as you look at the numbers, um, a lot of times people ask me, well, how did you catch that? Well, it's because I kind of ignored the breaks in chapters and the breaks in numbers because it's a continuous narrative. Oftentimes it was given on a full scroll. If you remember when Jesus was in Nazareth, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, 
right? And it's the whole scroll. It didn't have chapters and, and stops in it. So neither verses nor chapters were applied with any particular method and aren't authoritative. Verses out of context can lead to mis serious misunderstandings. So the fact that we've taken these numbers and we've kind of picked, anybody ever cherry-picked your favorite verse and you crochet it on a pillow? Nobody's done that, right? Or you have the t-shirt? That's great, but that's out of context. That's not how it was given. It was given to give a fuller picture, not just a little snippet. That doesn't make sense to our little snippet culture, does it? And so many of us, man, we just choose to kind of read a chapter and, and chapter at a time. You ever sat down and just committed yourself to reading a full book of the Bible? I challenge you to do that. Start with Psalms. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's the longest book in the Bible, right? Start with a smaller book, but read in its entirety. Why is that important? So we get the full picture in one sitting about who God is. So often we tend to pick and we just, we take these verses and we start to do word studies and we start to miss out on the big picture about who God is. And instead we spend five hours, some of my friends are studying through the Bible and I love them, but they're missing it because they sit and pick one word in one verse and they spend three years on it. You ever been in a Bible study like that? That's dangerous to get so specific in that because you're going to miss out on the whole council of Scripture. You're going to know that one Greek word really, really well to the expense of knowing who God is in the rest of the council of Scripture. So immediate, one must consider the immediate context of what you're reading and the overall context of Scripture. All right. As we read the Bible, as we read Scripture, if we're going to be a church that's reading Scripture, we need to remember that Jesus is the main character of the entire Bible, not just the New Testament. Jesus taught that the Bible is primarily about him. If you remember, on the road to Emmaus, two men were walking and talking, and what happened? Jesus shows up. And they begin to discuss all the things that happened with Jesus. And Jesus kind of sits down. They don't even know it's Jesus yet. And he says, hey, did you know, starting from Genesis all the way to what the apostles would eventually teach, right? That's all about me. That's all about Jesus. And so there is no passage in this Bible that doesn't point us to who? Jesus. Jesus taught that the Old Testament is primarily about him. Jesus is the climax of Scripture, and so to correctly interpret scripture, verses, concepts, and events, they all have to do what? Connect to Jesus. Here's where the church, I think, has gone south in the very recent history. We became much more about Christian living and how to practice a life that is, is good and, and how to do the right things. And we've taken that and we've begun to use our swords more on how to live a good life instead of how to know Jesus. It's very important that we don't just read the scriptures as a format to get better, but instead to encounter the one who can save us. To correctly interpret then scripture verses, concepts, and events, they all must connect to Jesus. That's right interpretation of the Bible. Old Testament predicts and prepares people for Jesus' coming, and the New Testament reports Jesus' life and records the results. The Old Testament is full of promises about Jesus, the Messiah that would come. It's a whole longing. If you've ever read much of the Old Testament, you get this sense that, man, this stinks. You ever been there? You're like, this is painful to read. Did you know it's supposed to be painful to read? Because it's a recording of, of what man does on his own right without God. 
And so when man tries to earn his salvation, it's a train wreck. The Old Testament is a train wreck, isn't it? Leading us down the toilet until we finally recognize that we need something. We need a Messiah. We need the Christ who would pull us out from the junk that we found ourselves in. And so Jesus makes all these kinds of appearances even in the Old Testament. Did you know Jesus is in the Old Testament? We call these things Christophanies, that Jesus makes appearances in the Old Testament. The first one that comes to mind is, who is the fourth one in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You better believe that that was Jesus. That was a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. As you know, he existed before he was born, didn't he? He always was. You guys doing okay? Okay. Just making sure I'm not putting you to sleep here, okay? So representative figures, institutions, and events that foreshadow Jesus. There's this idea that David is a Jesus-like figure, isn't he? But that he foreshadows the coming of Christ. And so every event foreshadows the coming of Christ. Was there going to be a better king than David? Yeah, Jesus is a better king. Is there going to be a better priest than Moses? A better mediator than Moses? And I guess you should say a better priest than Aaron. Yeah, Jesus is the better, right? And so is there uh, an exodus from sin into righteousness? Yeah, that whole historical event is not just a historical event, but it was to say, look what I'm about to do in human history through Jesus. The whole story of the book of Exodus, did you know it's about Jesus? Isn't that amazing? All the different titles that are given to Jesus throughout the Old Testament, prelude his coming. So we have son of man. That was, by the way, did you know Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself was son of man? Well, that was prophetic. Um, It it was a promise of the the coming uh, Messiah out of Daniel. Um, The suffering servant we've heard and read in, in Isaiah, is Jesus the suffering servant? Yes, he's the first and the last. He's the light, the rock, He's the husband or bridegroom. He's the shepherd, the redeemer, the savior, the Lord of glory. All of those titles are given to Jesus starting in the Old Testament and then come into fruition in the New Testament. Did you know that? So scripture has a true central message, brothers and sisters. I hope this is your big takeaway. Things become very problematic if we don't understand that Jesus is the central message of the scriptures and the central message of human history. I want to quote, I got a lot of this uh, from a study, What Christians Should Believe, and uh, here's a quote from the book. The most common error in interpreting scripture is moralizing. Moralizing is reading the Bible not to learn about Jesus, but only to learn principles for how to live as a good person by following the good example of some people and avoiding the bad example of others. By the way, when I've heard the Old Testament taught, I've almost entirely heard it taught. Here's what they did wrong, and here's what we can do right. That's moralizing the Old Testament, isn't it? The Old Testament has to be about Jesus, not just avoiding the pitfalls of those who come before us. That kind of approach to the scriptures is not Christian because it treats the Bible like any other book with moral lessons that are utterly disconnected from faith and salvation from Jesus. So brothers and sisters, next week I hope to do uh, an exploration about how we got the Bible, how was it put together by the early church, and why is it that we can trust that it is true, okay? Is this a good summer series? You guys hanging in there with me? I know some of it maybe is review for you. Good. Um, For some of you, it may be new. Great. 
Let's sink our teeth into the structure of the word of God because it is God's power for salvation. Amen. All right. Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for the small groups. I pray for our discipleship. I pray that we would be a scripture-centered church, that we would be about the word of God above the word of man, far and above the word of man. God, would you help guide us to rightly interpret your scripture? We know that there is a meaning and a guide to your word, and it doesn't lead us apart from your will if we rightly understand it. And so, God, I pray that we would be united with all of the world's church if we rightly interpret the word that you gave us. So, Lord, we just pray, Holy Spirit, we need you in that endeavor. And God, we pray that every person that comes to this church, God, would know their sword so they could use it confidently and not with hesitancy. Lord, we just pray that. In Jesus' name, over the brothers, sisters here, amen. Guys, thank you so much for being here today. So you guys know baptism next week, amen? And then we're also, next week, we're gonna call a short business meeting because we got some people that are gonna come and be members of our church, amen? All right, hey, brothers and sisters, would you go and learn and train and practice with your swords this week? I love you. Uh, Go in Jesus' name.